Well, we're in the closing message here in our series called You, Me, and We. And we happen to be talking about designer sex today. And uh, you may have noticed that this message was supposed to appear earlier in the series. Anybody notice that? And we had to move it because I had to take an emergency trip home to Manitoba uh, to be with my parents who weren't doing well. And so we shifted things around. We don't normally close a series on this topic, um, but we are today, and it's the seventh and final message in the series. And uh, I want to give a qualifier for today's message. For the most part, I'm going to be talking in general terms, okay? I'm not going to be always specific, but I'm talking in general terms. So turn to the person beside you and say, he's talking in general terms today, okay? Can you do that? It's important. He's talking in general terms today. Because there's so many different scenarios regarding couples and life situations. Uh, life stage is one thing. Whether you've got little kids is another thing. Whether you travel a lot for your job, that's another thing. So I'm going to be speaking in general terms about sexual intimacy and marriage. And I need you guys to do the translation into your own lives. Sound good? You guys are awesome people. You'll, you'll know what to do. And to those of you who are new with us, Maybe you're not used to hearing the topic of sexuality in, in the church. We understand that some churches avoid that topic, but we see it as so important uh, to proclaim what God's Word says about it, because this is a big part of our lives, amen? And we want to we be wise, and we want to be prepared, and we want to be blessed as people. So that's why we do it, and I think you're going to be encouraged by today's message. So turn in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, and then put a piece of paper in the Song of Songs, chapter 8. And then one more section, Proverbs chapter 30. We'll cover those again here in a bit. Someone once said this, that the world perverts sex, the church shames sex, but the kingdom of heaven celebrates sex. And we just got to lay hold of the great good ground that God has for us in his word concerning our sexuality. Sex is a good thing. And if we don't paint the biblical picture well, uh, then we leave it up to the culture around us to shape our understanding of it. And that's really what's happened over the centuries, that the church has allowed the world around it to define its sexuality. And uh, so I just want to let you know where I'm going with this message. Uh, there's more to life than avoiding sexual brokenness. God has actually designed us for a life of sexual wholeness. So we're going to look at both of these parts to it, sexual brokenness and sexual wholeness. Daniel did a great job touching on that last Sunday, and we're going to be encouraged and strengthened through God's word this morning. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 at verse 1. Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but since sexual immorality is occurring... Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self 
control. Friends, this is one of those very unique passages in the Bible that speaks quite clearly about our sexual lives, especially for those people who are married. And it defines some things that we need to lay as a foundation so that we can build our lives properly on it. Paul deals with a crisis situation here. He's responding to a letter that they sent to him. And you look at verse 26, he says, because of the present crisis. And there are all kinds of people that were confused about their sexuality, uh, about their relationships, about their marriages. And they wrote Paul a big letter saying, we've got a list of questions for you. And so he responds back. And he actually quotes uh, from one of their questions. We believe it was this. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. He's quoting them there. He's, He's most likely saying, this was one of your questions. And in the Corinthian church, there were some strange things going on. You had two extremes. You had a form of asceticism, which is the denial of the body happening. So some married couples were getting so spiritual that they weren't actually having sexual intimacy together. They, they had stopped having intimacy. And then on the other side of the scale, you've got, you've got immorality occurring. It's happening in the Corinthian context, and it's creeping into the church, and many of the people who were Christians then had come out of that lifestyle. So they're very confused about who they're supposed to sleep with and whether that's really important or not, and, and when are you supposed to have sex and when are you not supposed to have sex. So Paul answers that in chapter 7. It's worth reading the whole chapter. And we're going to look at the foundation he lays here and, uh, and build upon it. But before we do that, I want to raise the question about sexual desire. I mean, where does this thing come from? Well, we know from the Bible that God is the source of sexuality. God's the author and designer of sex. Therefore, in its origin, it's good. And I don't know if you can say that along with me, but sex is a good thing. We've got to start there. We've got to begin where God begins. This is how we end the perpetual cycle of shame and brokenness. We start with God's view of ourselves. He made us in his own image, and he designed us as male and female so that we could live a life of sexual wholeness. And he wants us to know the truths about that. And we see that in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 2, uh, that, that God pronounced the, the whole creation good, and then he made man in his own image, right? And then he said it's not good for the man to be alone, so he takes a rib from the man, he puts the man to sleep, and out of the rib he makes the woman. So uh, this first couple had this powerful union. Uh, they were brought together by God. And uh, I think we need to understand What's really going on here? When Adam went to sleep and God did that surgery on him, he removed something from his being. And then he made the woman out of that rib. That's what the Bible says. Adam wakes up. This is my opinion. He probably thinks, something's missing in me. (laughs) What's going on? Lord, what, what, what did you do? And at that moment, the Lord God brings him his wife. And he just parades her into the garden. And he goes, ah! There's something in me that resonates with that being because I'm kind of with her and she's with me and we're supposed to be together. And if you look at Genesis chapter 2, Adam cries out when he sees the woman. He says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. And then there's the union of the two. There's a wedding initiated by the creator. And the two come back together to oneness. That's the power 
of the marriage relationship. Adam and Eve were the very first couple. And he prophesies over his wife. I don't know if you noticed that. He said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. By the way, husbands, that's what we should do for our wives. We should prophesy over them. We should proclaim prophetic truths over our spouses to bless them, to validate them, to affirm them, to encourage them, to honor them, and they're designed by God. And you might say, well, I don't know how to do that. I've got a solution for you. Just ask Jesus how. Say, Lord, how do I prophesy over my wife? And he'll show you how to do that. And it'll be a great blessing for your, your spouse. So Adam cries out. He says, this is the one I'm looking for. This is the missing piece in my life, the missing person in my life. I need to reattach to her, and she needs to reattach to me. And they come together, and they are one flesh. That's what marriage means. By the way, in the original setting, Adam and Eve were both naked in the garden, and it says they felt no shame. So I picture them walking around in the garden without clothes, and you can kind of imagine that, and Eve's looking at her husband, and she's going, I like the way you look. You're a handsome guy. And Adam's looking at her, and he's saying, I like the way you look too. Let's go for a stroll. Right? And here they are, they're naked, and they're unashamed. This is the original picture. I think all the 14-year-old boys would say, let's get back to that original design, right? <laughs> Good thing they're at Youth Alpha video right now. Get back to the original design as much as you can with wisdom. All right. So sex is a good thing. God made it, and, and he wants us to live wholesome lives as sexual beings. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Adam knew his wife Eve, and the Hebrew word is yada, and it means this deep, intimate knowledge. It's talking about the bond between them when they made love. And so the NIV translates it, that he made love to his wife, and she bore a son. All right, over to Proverbs chapter 30. I want us to look at how beautiful uh, the relationship is in sexual intimacy. And we've got the sayings of Agur here. Uh, Agur was a wise person in Israel, and uh, his sayings made it into the Bible, which means uh, they really were good proverbs, and they're preserved for us. And in verse 18 of chapter 30 in Proverbs, we read this. Here's the sayings of Agur. There are three things that are too amazing for me, Four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the seas, and the way of a man with a young woman. Or you can translate the word maiden or virgin. This is all about how different bodies move and how they move over things. It's about majestic expression. So I picture Agur sitting around one day and he's saying, well, there's three things that are really amazing to me. Actually, not three. There's four. Uh, one of them is, it's the way of an eagle in the sky. So there's this ascending arc, this beautiful expression of the eagle, you know, flapping its wings and going to the heights in the body of the sky. And then he says, there's the way of a snake on a rock. You ever see a snake on a rock on a warm, sunny day? You know, on a boulder, it's just sort of stretching out, right? It just kind of covers the whole territory with its skin. And then he says there's the way of a ship on the seas. Well, that's that up and down motion, right? You ride the wave up and you ride the wave down. And Agur's saying, that's an amazing thing. 
And then he throws in this comment, there's also the way of a man with a young woman. And it's like Agar saying, there's beauty in the movement of those bodies. Uh, that, the, that the man with his young bride, he's just all over her. And the way he holds her, and the way he caresses her, and the way he picks her up, he's probably seen this all at a Hebrew wedding. Or he's been looking through windows and kind of studying people. No. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. Agar's a godly guy, and his proverbs are here because he was moral and pure, no doubt. So, God is not nervous about sex. When couples have that moment in the bedroom, God's not like, oh, I better leave. They're, they're going to make out now. They're going to make love now. i got to leave. No. God's still present. He's okay with it. He made us with this desire and this capacity. And we just got to remind ourselves that we can't spend the rest of our life avoiding sexual brokenness. Because some people get really stuck there. God has designed us for a life of sexual wholeness. And that leads me to get us thinking about something here that I want to call the sexual drive. And uh, what does the Bible have to say about the sexual drive? Well, it tells us that it's God-given, uh, that it's a good thing, that it needs to be taken care of and managed. So I want you to turn to Song of Songs chapter 8. We'll just briefly look at that for a moment, make some observations about it. By the way, if you haven't read the Song of Songs, I highly encourage you to do that as a married couple. Um, maybe even on anniversaries to read a portion of it and pray it through. This is a beautiful uh, story in the Bible of Hebrew courtship, um, uh, engagement, a wedding night, um, honeymoon, the day after the honeymoon, and ongoing life. And it's just all about human, romantic, beautiful love. So Song of Songs, chapter 8, verse 5 and a half. This is the woman now speaking about her husband and speaking to him. They've been married. They've had their honeymoon. It's a few days later. And this is what she says. Under the apple tree, I roused you. So can I just put the A word in there? Under the apple tree, I aroused you. There your mother conceived you. There she who was in labor gave you birth. So she's saying, I want to get to that apple tree where your parents made love. And I want us to keep the family tradition going. So let's just go to the apple tree and I will, I will rouse you at that place where you were conceived. And, and then she says this, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. You know, friends, it's not talking here about agape love where we self-sacrifice ourselves. There's a place for that too. That's all part of it, but not in this context. This is the beauty of romantic, human, passionate, sexual love. Love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. All right. I think God is saying in that passage to us and many other ones that we have a sexual drive. And it's good. It's noble. It's honorable. That's why Paul the Apostle said in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 9, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And when you see that phrase, burn with passion, please don't think negatively about it. It's like, oh, you got the burning passion thing. No, it's saying you've got this burning passion 
And it's better to marry than to let that just burn forever. (laughs) So as someone once said, you know, you shouldn't just get married because you want to have sex, but you should get married so that you can have sex. Does that make sense? Is that too deep for you? (laughs) God has given us marriage as a place to express the burning passion. And he wants us to be fulfilled. And we've been saying in this series that you have a fire within you. And you just got to take care of it. And uh, so I want to talk for a minute about how we save ourselves for our wedding day, if we're single or if we're, we're young adults or, or teenagers, as we think about our future. How do you save yourself for your wedding day? How do you keep your virginity uh, intact with all of life coming at you, and, and it's so complex? So a guy named Chris Valaton spoke on this a while ago, and he, he kind of says it in a very special way. I'm going to try to quote him here. He says, The value of your virginity is determined by getting you all the way from the battlefield of life to your honeymoon suite so that on the night of your wedding you have something to give to your new husband or wife as you lay with them on your honeymoon night and give them your trophy. I like that. He's saying that the value of your virginity is calculated by how many battles you fought to keep it intact, to keep yourself reserved for that future when one day you'll offer your gift, the gift of your purity, to your spouse. You've had to fight hard for that, he's saying. And you know what? I think that when we, when we save something for the future, when we um, d- deny ourselves certain things at certain times of life so that we can do a, a full release later, that's a noble gesture on our part It's like the 500-year-old bottle of wine that's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. You just don't uncork that at a hockey game, right? You don't. You have a Budweiser or something, right? You don't open a 500-year-old bottle of wine over just a cheap date, right? You save that because that's worth a lot. And it's a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience that you want to provide for the person who's going to have that that sipping experience with you. And so I want to say this to you, friends. You are expensive. You're made in the image of God. This is no small thing compared to everything else in creation. We're made in God's image. And the gift of your sexuality is a precious gift. And we just have to encourage each other and lean on the Lord and trust the Holy Spirit and apply the wisdom of God so that we don't waste the gift of our sexuality, that we save it for its intended purpose and express it there. So I don't want to squander the gift that God has given to me, and I'm sure you don't want to squander the gift that God has given to you. And I think the church spends perhaps too much time shaming people in the area of sexuality. We're pretty clear on what not to do, um, but we sometimes fail to paint the picture of what we can do. And so hopefully in this series we've been touching on those truths in the Bible that show us it's okay to have a great sex life with your married spouse. God wants that. He has blessed that union. He wants you to enjoy each other's intimacy. But you've got to save yourself, right, till you get there. And I remember in my own life, can I share the story with you? I was 21 years of age or so, and um, I was not in a dating relationship. I hadn't met Mary Ann yet, and... Uh, I was having a real battle with temptation, and, uh, and the fire was burning. You know what I mean? It was just burning all the time, and I'm like, oh, God, this is not going to go well. I have to find a wife or, I, or something else to change here. 
And I knew I wasn't ready for marriage, you know what I mean? Like, I had a lot of growing up to do. I had kind of a strange young adult journey, and I had to rebuild some things uh, in my early 20s that they weren't properly built before. And so I said, Lord, I don't think I'm ready to get married, but I can't live like this, so I'm going to ask you to do something. Would you just shut off my, my passion? Would you just turn the valve off for a time of my sexual drive? And it's like I heard the Lord talk back to me saying, are you sure? <laughs> Seriously. Because he's a gentleman, and I don't think he would violate my humanity. And, and I said, no, I'm serious. Lord, just, just put it all on hold. Just turn off the tap for a few years. But a month later, I realized, wow, I'm not struggling with those things anymore. And, uh, and, and those RPMs were a lot lower, and I was winning battles that I had never won before or not won properly. And... Uh, I realized this is kind of cool. So I was a young adult, and I'm growing spiritually. I'm serving in three different ministries. I'm going all over the place, having a blast at that. I was growing like a, like a weed and just really ascending in my spiritual life with the Lord. And then I saw Marianne <laughs> at a young adults group, and I went, oh, oh, but my tap's off, you know. <laughs> but I want my tap back on. Seriously. She, she sort of remembers this. I haven't told her all of this. but <laughs> My tap shut off, but I look at her and I go, that, that's, the, that's good. I, I, I want that. And uh, I went back to God and I said, God, remember I asked you about turning off the tap of my sexual desires? Could you like turn it on? Open up the valve again? And I was kind of scared because what if God said, no. And I'm like, Oh, it really is in your hands. And, and I felt the Lord was going to do something, and soon enough, wham, it all came back. Hormones raging, right? Sexual drive is healthy and alive. And we started into our journey as a couple dating and then engaged and then married. But we fought the battlefield, fought through the issues of purity along the way so that on our wedding night, we can say, here's my whole purity and my whole life for you. And I want God to just encourage you with that because there are steps we can take now that will gain us that kind of intimacy when we're married. Some of us maybe have crossed lines on the way to marriage, and, and I don't want to leave you in shame and condemnation. We're going to deal with that in the end of my talk here today, so hang in there with me because you don't have to live in shame and condemnation. God is a restorer. God forgives. God releases us from burdens and from our past, and he makes us pure. Again, and it's real. So hang in there for that. We're going to lead you in a moment to claim that if you need that. But God is so good. And you know, if you're single, I want to say this to you. Just enjoy being single. Don't be in a panic about that. Um, make sure that you take advantage of that season of life. Grow spiritually. Experience things. Um, remember this, that Paul the Apostle was not married, as far as we can tell. Jesus was not married, and he did fine, right? And he's setting the pace for our lives. And if you're single, just know this. There's more to being a sexual person than having sex. You're still a sexual person, even if you're not in a marriage relationship. And there's more to life than avoiding sexual brokenness. Remember that God has designed us for a life of sexual wholeness. All right. I'm going to shift gears here and talk about sexual intimacy 
And in the Song of Songs, chapter 8 at verse 4, we've got kind of a unique verse there. And it says this, Daughters of Jerusalem. So listen up, all the young women of the church. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And it's echoed earlier in chapter 2 at verse 6. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. What's it saying? It's saying there's a time in your life when it's appropriate to allow those flames to heat up. And uh, don't awaken love, because once it gets awakened, it's hard to put it out. Make sure that God is arranging the circumstances of your life and leading you and guiding you so that when you activate that switch of your drive and pursue a marriage, you're in the right place with God and the right place with people. I want to share with you something about weddings here. You know, weddings are beautiful experiences, aren't they? And uh, I remember my own wedding like yesterday. Uh, I remember my son's wedding uh, like yesterday. They're beautiful, beautiful moments. And in the Bible times, weddings were even bigger deals than they are right now. The average wedding would last a week. There was music and dancing and feasting. Um, everybody prepared for the wedding for a year. If you got an invitation to go to a wedding, you did not say no. <laughs> Uh, you had to show up, take a week off work, and join the whole community in celebration of the wedding. And everybody wanted to do that. So during that year of preparation, the bride prepared herself, got her skin all nice and soft, and her hair was all really, really gorgeous. And the groom is preparing a, a, a bridal chamber in his house, usually under his parents' roof. When the wedding day arrived, here's what happened. Um, the groom, with the best man leading in front of him, would step out of the groom's house and about 100 or more young men would all show up with swords. And they would just be like a little mini army. And they would go marching down the street to the bride's house. Quoting verses from the Song of Songs as they went. They get to the bride's house. The father of the bride comes out. He pronounces a blessing. Then the bride comes out. She's gorgeous. She's got the most beautiful face, beautiful dress, beautiful hair. And she steps into her carriage. And they lift her up. And they put the groom in a carriage beside her and they lift him up and they take them downtown into the village square. There they celebrated the wedding. They first got together as a couple with the parents. There was a legal statement made um, and then the parents gave their blessing. It took like just a few minutes and then the rest of the time was celebration. At some point in the night though, at some point, the bride and groom would disappear. Just whoosh, they just vanish. And everybody knew. They're going in the tent. They're in the tent right now. We're dancing and singing, and they're in the tent. Everybody knew. And you could probably see them go into the tent and, you know, zip up the door, and the lights go out, and everybody understood. They're making love right now. That's a good thing. Twelve-year-old kids would be riding their bikes around going, the couple's having sex right now in that tent or in the groom's house. There's no shame here. Do you get that? No shame. This was celebrated in the center of the community. That this is how beautiful this gift of lovemaking is. That it's something that the whole community honors and celebrates and says, this is good. We want them to have a great experience together. Next day, the couple wakes up. They come out of the tent and they join everybody else for six days of feasting and banqueting and opening up presents. 
And when Jesus was at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, that's what he saw. You know, seven days of people mingling together, honoring each other, and God blessing a couple in their intimate relationship. There's a oneness that's powerful in a marriage relationship that has to be celebrated, amen? It's gotta be celebrated. The beauty of sexual intimacy designed by God is something that is worth fighting for and, and, and doing all we can to treat with great dignity. When we don't do that, we end up giving into fantasies or inappropriate expressions of our sexuality. We get into things that are done in the dark. Chris Vallotton says this, perversion is the wrong version. <laughs> so the reason people get into perversion in sexuality is they just don't know how good it can be in the original version. Are you with me? We've got to emphasize this. The happiest couples on earth should be those who walk with God in their sexuality. They should have no fear, no shame, no games are played, and the depth of their bond is something so special that only God could give. So what are some of the ways then that couples can express this sexuality? Well, I want us to look again at our main passage here, 1 Corinthians 7, because I think we're living in times when there is a crisis. And I think we're living in moments where even in the church, there's some people who've been married for a while and they don't have it all figured out and they need to pursue new levels of freedom. So back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3 and 4, it says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Paul's using the language here that has a legal tone to it. It's about rights. It's about legitimate needs. And he's saying here, in effect, that each of you has the right to call for the other one to give themselves to you in sexual intimacy. And uh, there was a church that did a message on this a little while ago. I listened to it, and they called this message from this text, Call of Duty. It's a duty call, right? It's like, hey, it says there, you know, I got authority over your body. So uh, what happened was the week after this message, one of the staff members twittered out, hashtag, Call of Duty, spouse, duty call. See you at home. Right, so it's that real. And of course, there's other verses on marriage and sexuality that bring other perspectives, but we're letting this speak to us. It's like the husband is saying, I have authority over your body. Um, you're my wife. I have authority over your body. And it's like the wife is saying to her husband, I have authority over your body. And then it says, do not deprive each other. Don't do that. Don't deprive each other. So listen up. You know, wisdom is required here. Doesn't mean you can come home and say, okay, right now, baby, in the room we go. Like, you can try that. It might work. Um, you know, we're talking about real human beings here who are wise and gentle and loving and, and intentional about what we do. And it might not work to do this in the places you did when you were younger. As you get older, it might not be that easy. So think about that too. But don't give those up too quickly. I'm speaking in general terms here. 
Do your own translation. And uh, there's different sexual meals, right? There's different sexual meals. There's, of course, the four-hour banquet. You know, like the Palliser Hotel, right? You go down there, you spend like four hours, and you get, you know, this is served to you, and then this is served to you, and you taste this, and you have this, and, and you know, that's awesome, and you get the full meal, and you don't want to leave, and four hours later, you're heading out. That's, that's what everybody desires all the time, but we don't always have those Palliser meals in this area. And sometimes there's the really nice restaurant meal where you're like, I could do an hour and a half there. And uh, you're there, and it's good. It's just not that special. Then there's the 45-minute place, you know, uh, fast food. You sit down, you eat, and you get fed, and you go. And then there's drive through right? <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> there's drive through Every one of them will feed you. Man, you guys are really intelligent. You know what I'm talking about here. <laughs> Every one of those will feed you. And sometimes it's drive through And sometimes it's, no, we are going to have a banquet. And you've got to plan that out. And you've got to establish, you know, the environment for that. And I'm just saying to you, be wise, right? Be alert and be creative and talk about this. And use signals and code language if you have to. And, you know, Andy Stanley does a good job in his book uh, touching on some of these topics. You should buy his book and, and read it. Uh, sadly, sometimes people lose their sex drive. It's sad. It happens in life, and there's often real reasons for it. And, um, in his book, he talks about frozen women. Um, he's met them, and times they confess to their pastor, you know what, I have no desire for my husband He's like, well, where'd the desire go? They go, I don't know. It's just gone. And it's like, wow. Um, you know, it may be different answers for that. It might be that there's something from the woman's past that she hasn't reconciled to yet. Or it might be that she's had an experience outside the marriage before she was married. And there's some shame that's over her. And finally, it shuts down that desire for her husband. It might be that there's emotional wounding might be that she's had an abortion and she's got scars in her heart and her soul and her body. Could be a number of things. Could be depression. Could just be life stage. You're transitioning from one stage to another. But it has to be taken care of. You know, it's just not acceptable. I said this at 9 o'clock. It's just not acceptable for one spouse to say, I'm not having sex with you anymore. You can't do that if you're a Christ follower. You can't do that. It's wrong. Uh, we're to give ourselves to our spouse and, and, and meet those needs as best we can. And we'll never be everything because, you know, like we're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about what is wholesome and good and right. And so I encourage any of you who are here who've got a frozen desire level, ask God to awaken that. Say, come awaken love again. Awaken it within me, Lord, that passion. And that might mean that you need to be prayed for and have hands laid on you for healing. Uh, it might mean that you need to change your diet or you need some, some deep conversations with your spouse. Maybe you're just ticked off at them. And you just got to resolve that. And that bitterness is just creeping in there. I want to talk about men who deprive their spouses of their passion by going for the cheap imitation, which we will call pornography. It's a big, big, big issue in our times. Not just for men, also for women. As Daniel has informed us, 40% of women are addicted to pornography. 
Wow, who would have thought? So, but when you're caught up in pornography, you're robbing your spouse of the passion you're releasing there. It deserves to be released in the intimate relationship with your spouse. Are you with me? It's got to be expressed there. And so it's not cool to just go online or look at a magazine and have a happy ending. It's not cool. It is sinful. It's bad. We need to repent of it. Now, let me say this to the men in the audience here, because you already knew that. You already knew that, and it's not enough for you just to repent of this stuff. You do need to repent of it all the time, if you ever dabble in it, but there's a greater call. And it's this, that the root of your issue is not pornography. You have to go deeper into your soul to find out what is going on in me. Why is it that I so often give myself over to those images? Why is it that I so often willingly yield myself to someone else in an image-based fantasy? You have to dig deeper into your sense of identity. And for a lot of men, it comes down to fatherlessness. They never had a dad who said, you are a man, and you're great, and I affirm you and bless you, and you've never been affirmed by other men. And so your whole identity is kind of warped, and you're like, who am I? What am I all about? And when we don't draw that identity that we have in Christ from our Heavenly Father, when we don't go to Him for that sense of identity, we will turn to other things to fill our lives up. Work, sexuality, sports. And so the issue of porn is it's got to be solved at a deeper level. Paul says in verse 5, Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. He's saying don't go too long without sexual intimacy. If you're withholding sexual intimacy from your spouse, that is not right. That's a sin according to the Bible. You need to repent of that and understand what is it, what's going on in you that makes you want to forbid that from happening. Satan will tempt you because of a lack of self-control. So even if you're going to pray and spend some time you know, in a season of seeking God, you still have to have an understanding that you'll be back together. And remember this, there's warfare in marriage, friends. There's warfare in the marriage. And the good news is, is that God is fighting for us too. And he wants to give you the equipment and the tools to win the battles so that you can live a life of sexual wholeness and purity. I'm going to invite our worship team to come on up here. This message was a little longer than I wanted it to be, but there was just so many angles to try to cover here. And I want to leave you with some things to think about. And then we're going to sing uh, a powerful song uh, that the worship team chose in advance for this, a great song. But I want you to do some, some really deep reflection with me. And I want to ask you this first question. Are you willing to embrace God's vision for a healthy sexual identity? Are you willing to embrace that? Are you willing to stop believing any of the lies that have been spoken over you or spoken into you? Or lies that you've made agreement with in your own heart? Lies that you can never get over this sin. Lies that you can never be satisfied in Christ. Lies that nobody wants you. Are you willing to ask God for wholeness and healing where you need it? You might say, I have a sexual past. Perhaps you do. But if you're a follower of Jesus, hear me on this. If you're a follower of Jesus, your past sins are wiped out. We just don't dare believe that. 
The Bible says in Christ you're a new creation. Your real identity in Jesus is that you are a pure son and a pure daughter and you can live from that identity in this world. And your sexuality is then expressed through your kingdom identity and your new nature which is in Christ. God sees you as sinless. If you've made mistakes in the past, he's dealt with them. He forgives us of our sins, right? It also says in the Bible he doesn't remember them. So if we go bringing up our sins to God, saying, oh God, here I am again, and you know my past, and I've been like this in my past, and I've done these sins in my past, I can picture God up in heaven saying to an angel, check the books. They flip open the books, they got the record of everything. They go, we're checking here your record. There's no record of that. Well, I know that I did this, and it just has a little asterisk there. You know, the blood has covered this. The blood has covered it. The past is wiped out. The sinfulness is gone. So God looks at you right now as if you were sinless. And you start walking in that identity and rejecting the lies of the enemy, you know that you can say with confidence, there is no condemnation in my life. There is no shame. There is no guilt. I'm walking in the freedom of Jesus. Let's stand together. This is what Jesus provides for us. Absolute freedom. Who wants it? Absolute freedom. Wholeness. Passion that's noble and good. Victories that go from one degree of victory to another. Joy. Purpose. Great relationships. So as we stand together and sing this song we're wrapping up this series this whole you, me, we experience I want to encourage you to boldly say God you're fighting for me you're fighting for me God is a mighty warrior he's strong and we need to proclaim him over our lives in freedom in the name of Jesus and take all the ground that's ours to take sound good? let's sing with all of our hearts